So to enter into a clinical space in trans space where you're not even allowed to talk about the condition, you're not allowed to understand it, you're not allowed to research it in some cases, it, that it's it's become this culturally sort of because queer theory is is a political philosophy. It's it it and it's it was never intended to help us understand what gender dysphoria is. Those are two completely unrelated things. And so it's alarming that the clinical practice is no longer about, let's dig into the evidence, let's understand this condition, let's make sure that we're providing the, the best, safest care possible. It's now this club of political social philosophy that doesn't seem to care who jumps on board. I mean, when, when you're an activist and you're trying to promote a, a political movement and a political way of thinking, you want the movement to grow. It would be a very ineffective political movement otherwise. And when, so when your agenda is, let's collect people as we go, let's, let's, let's educate people to buy into our way of thinking, that's active recruitment. And active recruitment in this case involves severe body modification. Hi everyone, I'm Lisa Selen Davis. Welcome to the audio version of my Substack newsletter, Broadview. I'm actually recording this introduction in my car during alternate side street parking because New York City, so I hope the audio is okay. Um, today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell, two trans men who co-founded the Gender Dysphoria Alliance and have in a lot of ways been trying to combat the misinformation in the mainstream media. You may have noticed that in the past six to nine months or so, the media, the mainstream media, has actually started reporting slightly more accurately on the science of gender-affirming care and about the people who've actually gotten hurt by it, not just the people who've been helped. That is, the media slowly started doing their job which, as many of you know, um, a whole host of New York Times contributors and the advocacy group GLAAD objected to in open letters. What they demanded was censorship and to stop reporting the whole story. And many adult trans people worry that if this censorship continues, if we keep trying to put the lid on those who've gotten hurt, it's going to boil over and it's going to make things worse for trans people who don't believe in gender identity ideology and who are concerned about what's happening, especially in pediatric gender clinics. So the Gender Dysphoria Alliance released a letter of its own, and they're asking for evidence-based care and for good science for less polarization. So the Aarons and I had a great conversation about it, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Broadview, Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Great Thanks to for be here. Us. Yeah. We, we have in the past been called Aaron Squared, if that's easier. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they, yeah. I, sometimes yeah. I refer to you as the Aarons. That, that's, yeah, that's a lot of the case, yeah. yeah. So I, I wanted to talk to you both today because of this letter you wrote about um, an, an open letter in response to 
what was happening with GLAAD pressuring the New York Times and the New York Times contributors pressuring the New York Times to report in a certain way. So I thought we could start by hearing a little bit about each of your experiences with gender dysphoria. Sure, sure. You want to go, go first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll go first. Um, yeah, so I, I would say that what I experienced started around age three. Um, and I think at that, at that age, I think it was because um, I mean, age three is when you're learning about um, how to categorize things into groups, you know, whether it's cats or dogs or, or male or female. So I think that's that's why the childhood type tends to start around age three when that cognitive process is starting. And so that's my earliest memory of it. It's not that I had any trouble categorizing things in general. So it's not that I was confused about what is what is a boy and what is a girl. It just when I when it came to categorizing myself. Um, I kept wanting to put myself in the male category, which wasn't a conscious decision. It was just, it was just like a little cognitive glitch that was happening, I guess, because I had so many traits that, you know, when you look at girls and look at boys, I mean, when you're starting that categorization process, um, little kids aren't thinking about gametes and chromosomes, right? We're looking at whatever we can visibly see or hear or experience so behaviors and appearance and um and I just seem to have so many of naturally those so many traits in the boy that I kept putting myself into boy category and as I got older that became more and more distressing because I knew I was making a mistake but I couldn't stop that that cognitive glitch from happening and as I got older and older it um it started to turn into a body dysmorphia and the way i would experience the way i would experience the sensation of it and we really i think people with gender dysphoria struggle to put this experience into words um because it isn't it is an, an unusual experience and so i had no framework to understand it and i had no words to describe it but i think the word the way i would describe it these days i don't like the you know born in the wrong body language and those kinds of things but I, it, and it it's like maleness or femaleness isn't a feeling. And so when we talk about, well, I felt like a male, I mean, that's nonsensical. And and I think trans people know that's nonsensical, but that we, we struggle to put it into words. But there's an experience that I think is very similar to the sensation that I felt. If you've ever been in a Zoom meeting or on a phone call where you hear your own voice echoed back, and that can be really distressing for people. Uh, I've had people say that they can't continue the conversation because that echo is just causing them so much discomfort. So I would I would describe that as a very similar sensation to how I experienced gender dysphoria, that any time I had to consider which category, male or female, do I belong in, I would experience that sensation. So that would be anything from catching my, my appearance in a mirror or in a window as I was walking by and, and interacting with other people because I knew that they were seeing that image that I would see in the mirror, that's what they were seeing. And, and that didn't match with how I thought that I should look. And, and I had a very different internal picture of how I looked. So if you can imagine, you know, that distress of being in that Zoom call and that echo is happening, imagine every human interaction you ever have or any image you see of yourself is causing that very similar 
you know, feeling of, of discomfort. And so that for me is what was so impairing. Um, I mean, going back to, you know, people would, would, would end a phone call because of that. Well, imagine going through your whole life feeling that. And so that is, was when my daughter was born uh, in my early thirties, I really wanted to address that because I wasn't functioning to the best of my ability. And when my daughter was born, it really mattered to me um, knowing that I was responsible for her, that I functioned better in the world. And so that was really my main motivation for transitioning. I wanted to function better and end that cognitive glitch. I didn't really understand what gender dysphoria was. Um, and it never, it, that never even came up when I went uh, to the clinic and was assessed, but, um, but the, the transition did stop for the most part, that glitch from happening. I want to ask you two quick things before we we go to Aaron T, which is um, how how did it impair you? That's one. And if it never came up when you went in to be assessed for transitioning, what was the assessment? So the the impairment part was because I sensed that this little glitch was happening. Um, and I couldn't think my way out of it. There was no logic that that could that could resolve that for me. Um, and so it did turn into a lot of rumination and just you know attempting to. It's like it's like software running into overdrive because it senses that there's there's a little kind of bug in the system, and you're trying to work out that bug through some kind of rationalization process and it, it just it could never be resolved so so it was the rumination that was that was an impairment but just that like i said just that that experience of discomfort similar to when the zoom call echoes back that that i just i couldn't like if you can imagine every conversation you had you go out for coffee with someone and you're experiencing that or you're going to a meeting and you experience that that it was very distracting. It's hard to be present and fully engaged in a, in a conversation with somebody when you're experiencing that that similar feeling to that echo coming back at you. So it just it just became so distracting. And did they did you explain that to to whoever was evaluating you for transition? Or? No, I think at the time, I mean, I didn't. Uh, this is the language that I'm kind of using in in hindsight to try to articulate it better. But at the time, you know, I probably used some of the cliches like I always just felt like I was a boy in some way. and And that was very obvious to everyone around me as a child. I mean, half of the town thought that I that literally was a boy and was put on the boys baseball team. And um, so I described experiences like that. Um, but there was no conversation about what gender dysphoria was, you know, what the research said it was. Intuitively, I felt, because I had been in the, in the gay and lesbian community um, since the time I was 16 until my early 30s. And I had certainly met other um, butch lesbians who described a similar experience that I had and and some a very highly effeminate gay men as well. And so intuitively I thought, okay, this must somehow be connected to being gay or lesbian because I hadn't heard any heterosexual people in my life experience, you know, describe an experience like that. So that's how I started to understand it was, you know, it was still 
a mystery to me about why that 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 little glitch would happen in someone's head. But I had met enough butch lesbians that experienced that that I thought that's that's how I made the connection. But when I was 19, I was also diagnosed with a rare um, intersex condition called an ovotestes. Um, and so when I discovered that and that surgeon, it was discovered by accident because I was having gynecological problems and they went in to remove a cyst and, and then ended up discovering the ovotestes, um, which would have exposed me to higher than average levels of, of testosterone, even as, you know, through fetal development. So that's how I pieced it together for myself was somehow I must have been masculinized in some way because of this testosterone exposure. Um, and I met so many very masculine lesbians, I thought maybe something similar had ha you know happened to them. And talking to a lot of trans men over the years, sort of the old school trans men, I mean, it, I think, I don't know if this is still the case because so many different kinds of people are transitioning these days, but in the old, old school days, it was all butch lesbians that were transitioning and they all described having higher than average testosterone and gynecological problems. That seemed to be pretty universal. Wow, that's interesting. All right. So that's how that's how I've made sense of it. We're gonna we're gonna come back then to talk about the the I in the in the um this alphabet, but let's hear Aaron Terrell's story of gender dysphoria. Yeah, so um I have a lot of similarities to Aaron, but also a lot of a lot of differences. For example, when I was quite young, I didn't have that kind of categorization mismatch. It was like I very much understood that I was a girl, that I was female. I just felt that that was wrong, that it was that it was a mistake. I was raised Christian, and I I, I believe that somehow God had made a mistake. Um, uh, and then that I was, so there, I was angry about the fact that I was a girl, and I thought it was a mistake, but I wasn't confused about it. Like I knew that's what I was. Um, but then, uh, I mean, the old the older I got, just the more it increased. This the more the 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 concept of being female just felt felt incorrect. Again, I, I was never like confused about it. It's just like it just felt more and more like it was wrong, and I kept thinking I would outgrow it. Um, this whole um, it, it was very private. I didn't tell anybody. That's how I how I was feeling, um, and I always assumed that I would outgrow it. It seemed very childish, very dumb to you know. Uh, to feel that way. And so I, I kept thinking I would outgrow it. And then so at, at 16, nope, still hadn't outgrown it. You know, 20, still hadn't outgrown it. 27, I was like, you know, I kept thinking at some point, you know, this is going to, um, uh, uh, yeah, just be, be a childish thing I put away and I never did. Um, and then so at uh, at 27 is when I did transition. Um, for me, much, it was very body-based my dysphoria very much about my chest it just that that always felt so foreign and wrong and um uh just really i've described it as basically like wearing an ill-fitting sweater that you can't take off like you're just chronically uncomfortable no matter where you are or what you're doing um it's just this yeah this very this like chronic discomfort i couldn't escape um yeah the, the my my voice my reflection in the mirror just they just it just was not right um with with transitioning that did go away so a lot of like we're obviously very critical about uh well, and, and very um concerned obviously about the the, the rate of uh, you know the rapid uh, transitioning and whatnot um 
I'm kind of losing my train of thought, but what I'm trying to say is um, it, it, it alleviated that chronic discomfort I felt all my life. It went away uh, with testosterone and especially uh, after I had the double mastectomy, like just uh, immediately re immediate relief. And um, uh, so, yeah, I do, I do believe that in some instances, it, you know, it resolves that, that psychological um, disconnect, whatever's happening there, uh, it, it can resolve it. Whether or not it's the right way to resolve it is, is another question, but, um, um, but yeah, so that, that was uh, kind of my experience with, with gender dysphoria. And, and Aaron Terrell, what was the, what was the assessment process like for you? You were 27. Where were you? What, where did you go? What did they ask you? So I went. I just went to my uh, my regular doctor uh, here in town and explained that uh, I I learned the terms online. Explained that I had uh, gender dysphoria and that I wanted to transition to male, and uh, I had no mental health comorbidities at all. Like um, never diagnosed with anything. I never actually had any kind of like depression or anxiety or anything like that. And um, so she said, well, normally you'd need to see a therapist for six months to begin the uh, transition process, but I think you know what you're talking about. I think you know what you're doing. Uh, so I'm going to refer you to this um, endocrinologist who doesn't require a letter uh, to begin hormone replacement therapy. So I went and saw him and he's like, oh, she shouldn't have told you that because I do, but let's have a conversation. And I was like, okay. He asked me, like, we, we talked for about 15 minutes. He asked me about, like, my family history and my sexual orientation, and which was which was entirely heterosexual at the time. I was only attracted to men back then. And I actually told him, I was like, I've only been attracted to men, and it feels like I'm a gay man or something like that. He's like, well, that makes sense. I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense. But well, I, at the time, I was like, yeah, perfect, it makes sense. But anyway, um, but that was it. And he prescribed me testosterone that day after talking to me for just a, just a few minutes about, um, you know, where it was all coming from. Um, again, I was overjoyed, but, um, but yeah, looking back, it wasn't exactly the most uh, responsible way uh, to, to conduct these things. Do you both think, um, or either of you think that if you had been allowed to do this starting at 12 to go on puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones that you would have taken that chance? I would have jumped at it. I probably would have too. So what is the problem with that then? I mean, because some of the kids are like you two. I mean, not all of them, but some of them have had these persistent feelings that never went away. Yeah. Uh, the the problem is what's known through research. Um, and, you know, I think my intuition about the childhood onset type of gender dysphoria being somehow connected to gay and lesbian i mean that has that has um been seen in in the research and i think there's now like 13 studies that all say pretty much the same thing that when you just love and support those kids and and let them be that the vast majority of the time those kids grow up to be healthy happy gay and lesbian adults who no longer feel that compulsion to change sex and there's there's really no way of predicting which you know roughly 85 percent is going to desist and which of us are going to persist into adulthood so it's really easy for trans adults to say yes i advocate for childhood tra transition because in hindsight they think that would have 
made things so much better and easier for them. And, and maybe that would have been the case for those of us that persist, but there's no way of knowing who's going to persist and who's going to de desist. There's, there's no sort of, it's not, not like there's a blood test that we can do to know for sure who is going to continue to feel this way into adulthood. And I don't, so I don't think it's right to inappropriately medicalize the 80% in order to spare, you know, the smaller percentage who may benefit from early life transition. I mean, one of the, one of the sort of activist talking points is that that perspective assumes it's worse to be trans and that that is therefore transphobic. How do you respond to that? Well, it is, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's not the, not the uh, way to, to phrase this, but Obviously, the ideal is to not need to 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 medicalize somebody, to not need to interfere with their actual, um, you know, endocrine system and you know their 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 whole healthy body. Um, that's that's what I would say. I mean, and you know, having to go this route is not is not the ideal um, uh, solution. Yeah, I don't see it as like a choice between trans or not trans. I see it as a choice between lifelong medicalization or being able to avoid lifelong medicalization. I don't think I would have opted to to go through such an extreme, you know, body modification that does have health and health impact if that wasn't really necessary. If I could have achieved the same resolution of of that distress and and lack of you know the um interfering with my functioning without all of the side effects and the health complications that can come with medicalization like why wouldn't that be the better option can either of you talk about some of the side effects that you've experienced or health complications I've been fairly lucky that I haven't had too much of a problem with the testosterone itself yet. I mean, we never know. I'm 50 now, so things may start to emerge. Um, the only exception to that would be, I mean, testosterone does have a, um, it works the the, the liver. Um, so there can be liver impairment. And because I'm on a number of medications, though so I have high cholesterol, which hadn't been the case it is genetic, so it's the it's the hormones interacting with your natural genetics. So if I didn't have a family history of high cholesterol, it might not have, have impacted my cholesterol levels. But my dad has high cholesterol, so as soon as I started testosterone, it started to elevate my cholesterol levels. And now I need medication to manage the cholesterol, but that medication is also hard on my liver. So it's a double burden with the testosterone and this medication on my liver and so when i do my blood work my liver enzymes are always elevated it is starting to damage my liver and there's really there's really nothing i can do about that at this point so 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 that i would say that's probably the biggest um hormone related impact that i've experienced but in terms of surgery um i i personally really happy with with the chest surgery i didn't have any problems with that, but I did have the metoidioplasty. And there's a very, very high complication rate with any of the genital surgeries, um, either metoidioplasty or phalloplasty for the female to males. Um, there's only one surgeon that our province was sending to people to here in Canada, I'm a surgeon in Montreal. But by the time I, I was on the wait list for that surgery for 10 years, 
And when I finally got the phone call, they said that they weren't really wanting to send anyone else to Montreal because the the outcome was so bad. Uh, they, they were getting a lot of complaints that, that the outcomes were bad. So they were trialing a couple of surgeons in the United States, one of them being um, Dr. Crane in Texas. He moved his practice from California to Texas. And he, at that time, had a very good reputation. And so he's the one that I chose. And we were told that his complication rate was roughly about 35%, which they said was was low. And when we came back, every single person I know, because I was down there with a number of other guys, so every single guy that I know that went to him for surgery had complications, some of them very major. And I heard from our provincial health authority that um, that their stats, it was about 80, 80% of the people that, that they sent down there had complications, some of them quite major. Um, so, you know, major scar tissue, major, um, the biggest complication is, is the urethral hookup. They have to extend the urethra by sev several inches and where they connect that often bursts open and creates, um, you're basically a sprinkler system at that point. So mine burst open in two separate places and one of them ended up healing on its own, fortunately, but the other one I had to have surgically um, corrected. And I had to wait over a year to get that revision surgery done. So I couldn't have a bath. I couldn't swim. I couldn't like, so it took up a lot of my life just, you know, on waiting lists and going to from one appointment to another appointment. And then you have surgery and then there's a complications, you have to have surgery again. So what they boast is, you know, this is a one surgery, you know, operation ends up being five surgeries because you have to go back to address all these complications. Can you just describe what that surgery is? Dermatoidoplasty. So when um, the female body is on testosterone, your, um, you know, your native genitalia grows in size to the, to, a, to the appearance of a microphallus. Um, and so they, they use that native tissue and do some fairly minor um, procedures just to masculinize the appearance. And they can, they can insert um, testicular implants and, and extend the urethra um, so that you urinate from the, from the tip of this microphallus. Uh, I opted for that just because it has a lower complication rate. Um, you know, the the phalloplasty is more of an adult size phallus, but they have to harvest tissue from other places in your body in order to to create that. And I didn't, I you know, I played violin and and banjo. I didn't want that impairment in in one of my arms because that's usually where they harvest the tissue is is the arm uh and that would have that would have been my pick because they say that that particular harvesting from that particular area because of the nerves and the um the blood vessels from that tissue um produces like the best possibility of maintaining sensation um, and I, but I didn't want to lose the function of my arm. You know, they can't take a big chunk of muscle out of your arm without some impairment to to your function. And they try to do it in your non-dominant hand. But when you play an instrument, I'm using, I need both arms. So, and I just find, I personally find that quite gory. Um, I know people that had that surgery, and every time they looked at the arm, they started throwing up. Like it's 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 gory, especially as it's healing. So, I didn't. Um, I didn't want to go that route and I didn't want to chance losing sensation altogether. And I know guys that have. 
where they go through all of that trouble, all of that expense, because it's paid out of, was paid out of pocket until recently. To go through all of that and have zero sensation would have been my worst nightmare. Did anybody ask you, like, what do you want out of this surgery? Why do you feel you need it? Uh, no, actually, that never came up. I mean, the sur the surgeon did have a, a consult over the phone. It was a five-minute conversation. He said, do you have any questions? And that was it. That was the extent of, of the conversation. And, and he had uh, something set up on a, on a website where it's this little module he goes through some of the most well-known complications. Um, so I knew that there was that possibility of things opening up uh, or or a, um, an even more serious complication is called a stricture, where the urethra close, closes off completely, and that's considered a medical emergency because your urine just starts to back up into your system and has nowhere to go. Um, so fortunately, I didn't experience that, but I, I did experience you know, the opening up. And so I knew that was a possibility, but I thought it was that 35% possibility. I didn't know it was 80% mm -hmm. chance of that happening. So, so even for adults, then the, the informed consent process was lacking in the evaluation process. It seems like for both of you, even if you're partially, at least partially happy with your results and don't don't regret transitioning that thinking back on it now there were other questions you should have been asked do you think when i when i started the process you know we're roughly 16 years ago there was more of an assessment process up front so before i started hormones i had to go and talk to my to the gp um over a three-month period and i don't I mean, it was 16 years ago now, so my my memory of it is a little bit vague, but I remember talking about, you know, sort of my childhood history. There was no pushback, though. Um, yeah, there, was, there wasn't a lot of exploration about, you know, what I hope to really get out of it and, and why and... And then I remember before I saw a surgeon for the first time, before my double mastectomy, he had a bunch of screeners um, where he was doing a little bit of assessment himself. And so I remember that was actually probably the most in-depth thing that I experienced because he had questions like, questions about sexual fantasies, for example, you know, like, and they were fairly detailed, and I know a lot of the guys were really angry about that. And they said, "Well, this, this surgeon must be a pervert if he's asking questions about our sexuality." But I think that was actually really helpful because if somebody, I don't know, let's say, let's say, you know, like one of the butch lesbians who transitioned, hadn't really thought through, is this surgery going to align with my sexuality? You know, I think I think those are really important questions to ask somebody, and it's, it has nothing to do with the surgeon needing to know that. I think the purpose of those questions is to get the patient to think about those things. If all of your sexual fantasies involve a different body part than the one you're having constructed, you're probably not going to be happy, right, with the results. There's going to be some disappointment or some some grief that you're going to go through. So someone may still choose to go through with it, but I think it's really important to consider all of those things before taking such a drastic step to alter your body. 
Well, yeah, and I think many young people today actually think that they can choose whether or not to be a boy or a girl and that these medical interventions will actually make that happen. And I don't think they know that they're choosing to be a medical patient. And, and, and that for many people, like that could be worth it. But if you cannot conceive of, of that, you, that you're making a choice to be one and that there may be some psychological relief, but there are other things that you have to deal with that could cause other kinds of grief or um, discomfort. And so, so when did you, when did each of you become concerned about the way gender dysphoria was being discussed in the media and, and the way the medical and mental health professions were were approaching treating gender dysphoria? There, there were two, two uh, a few um, things that started happening around me. I, um, in 2016, I went to see a, a, a therapist because I was going to, I never seen, uh, yeah, I never went to therapy prior to transitioning, but my insurance, my employer was going to pay for, um, for bottom surgery. So, so either metoidoplasty or phalloplasty. I hadn't decided which one, but I needed to go, I needed obviously to, um, get a therapist letter approving me for such a th surgery uh, in order for my uh, my insurance to pay for it. So in 2016, I went and saw this therapist and I told her what I was seeing her for. And she said, you can tell me anything you want to, and I will write you this letter because I don't believe in gatekeeping. That's what she told me on uh, the first visit. So um, that didn't feel like um, uh, responsible uh, health care. Uh, yeah, that, again, that was all the way back. That was seven years ago. It's gotten much worse now, as I understand. Um, and then it was a, a year later, uh, I befriended a few trans men in my local vicinity, um, none of whom had experience of gender dysphoria. They had all transitioned. They had been taking testosterone for a few years. Um, a, a couple of them had, had top surgery. Um, but when I explained like I just kind of assumed that they had a similar uh, experience as myself, as far as you know that kind of discomfort in the body and whatnot, um, and and that was not their their situation. They were explaining that they did that because they wanted people to know that they were trans. Um, so that was really kind of shocking um, to me, and that's when I re and then so I went online at that point, kind of re-enmeshed re myself into the online trans community. And I realized that that was kind of the pervasive understanding is that trans is just something you are. And if that's what you are, then you transition. Um, and a lot of people were talking about gender, you know, there's there's a, this kind of, uh, this section of the trans community called the true scums or the true transsexuals, trans medicalists, which Aaron and I are falsely accused of being, because I mean, I was at one point, but I, I, I no longer believe in such a thing. But um, uh, and they'll they'll say you know you have to have gender dysphoria to be trans, and they'll they'll describe their experiences of gender dysphoria, and they'll be describing completely different things amongst themselves, but yet completely convinced that they're they're the true trans. It's like you all are having very different experiences. You must understand that this is anyway beside the point. And then you go into the mainstream trans communities where they believe that gender dysphoria is something that you develop 
because cisgender society is persecuting you for being trans. So you are trans, there are cis people, there are trans people, and trans people can experience gender dysphoria, which is basically just the result of living in a cis-normative world. Um, and so I, I realized around yeah, about 2018 that that was kind of the understanding of uh, gender dysphoria and being trans, and uh, and it all seemed very, very alarming that medical practitioners were not aware of this, and they were just treating it all like exactly the same and you know you got a 16 year old coming in saying you know oh i'm trans and these doctors have to respond as if yeah this is like a lifelong uh it's um yeah it's just just yeah it's very alarming when it all started to kind of kind of fall together in my brain so it that's the kind of minority stress argument that the gender mm -hmm. the gender dysphoria arises from minority stress and that Therefore, we need to change the entire society to not press too hard on anyone who's trans, right? Not they they should never have to experience any discomfort um, because their lives are already so hard, and um, and therefore we should adjust society to accommodate them. Um, which is interesting though, because then wouldn't we have fewer medical interventions? I mean, in the past, just as a little thought experiment, in the, until recently, in the past six years, we've been changing the way we teach gender about school. The number of clinics have gone from, you know, three to, we don't know how many there are, but the current number going around in the media is 100 in the States. Um, I don't know about Canada, but um, and we have much, much, much more trans representation in the media. So wouldn't that, how can the diagnosis of gender dysphoria then be going up if, if prior to proud boys showing up with guns at, at pride rallies, you know, that we were on this, you know, from 2014, the transgender tipping point, uh, you know, on the cover of Time Magazine and I Am Jazz, and we were becoming this very trans accepting society, but but the amount of gender dysphoria was going up. How does that, how do those things square? That's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question. It doesn't really square. I mean, I've, I knew a lot of trans guys back in the day who you know who had been the butch lesbians who transitioned and a fair number the number of them said had had they had society been different and they could have just existed in the world as a butch lesbian and society knew what to do with them knew how to interact with them and knew that they had a place in society where they could be themselves and date who they wanted who they were attracted to and and just live their lives they probably wouldn't have medicalized so it is puzzling that we're seeing so many young people medicalize a lot of them who weren't even gender nonconforming as children medicalizing and it, it's a bit puzzling what that drive is for so many people to medicalize when supposedly there should be less minority stress not not more and yet this this other argument we hear and people keep bringing this up with me is, oh, but it's just a tiny fraction of the population. So we also get, you know, uh, the number of people identifying as trans has gone, you know, it's 10% of young people now 
But then we also hear it's such a tiny portion of the population that any concern is a moral panic. I've had a little trouble um, crafting uh, a good response to that. I mean, I my first thought is, well, for these families that feel pressured to affirm their children and medicalize, it doesn't matter how, how prevalent it is. It's very frightening and it puts you in a terrible position. And the families are absolutely terrified of having CPS called on them, Child Protective Services, which is so underreported in the media. The fear that these families live in once their child comes out as trans or, or self-identifies as self-diagnosis with gen gender dysphoria, if they don't respond in this one exact way, they know that someone, the school, the doctor could call CPS on them. So my first thought is, yeah, what if it is only 10,000 people? Oh, well, that's 10,000 families going through this difficult thing that shouldn't be that way, right? Like, Whatever, however, we're going to handle gender dysphoria, saying to a parent in front of the child, if you don't transition this child, the child will commit suicide. That is not the appropriate response. And I've heard that from a lot of people. So, but, but how do we, and, and by the way, and that other contradiction just interests me of, oh, yes, we are actually, we're very common, but we're so small that you shouldn't bother to report on on any controversy and then detransitioners or those getting hurt are so small that they shouldn't be looked at at all. But what, what response do you have to that argument? I have so many responses to that. There's, there, there's, a, there's a, a lot in what you said there, but I mean, it doesn't always go well. I mean, I've seen transition go very well for some people and I've seen it go very, very badly for some people. I've known, um, there's people on my radar here in Canada, there's three that I'm aware of who all applied for medically assisted death as a result of transition regret or a botched surgery. So there's, you know, and, and people who's, who feel that, that their lives are on hold and their lives are ruined because they're having so many complications from surgeries. Um, and so it, it's not so it's a little bit of a game of, of Russian roulette who's going to benefit and, and who isn't and you know even just looking at the at people who have this you know the same kind of intense gender dysphoria that that Aaron and I had even though some of those people do end up regretting it I have one friend who transitioned before I did so about 20 years ago who went through a very even then went through a quite a, an extensive assessment period but still chose to medicalize but now regrets it and realizes that once she worked through her childhood trauma and sexual abuse, realized that that was the reason why she had transitioned to male. It just felt safer to be in a male body because a female body was something, you know, that it, that, you know, was, that was a site of harm and, and trauma. So, so I have my, small circle of very close friends that transitioned. I'm the only one in that cohort that doesn't regret my transition. My other closest friend who, again, transitioned about 20 years ago, does regret it because he didn't realize that he had, he still goes by male pronouns, female to male trans, didn't realize that he had autism and now feels that that better explains why he felt such a, a you know awkwardness and disconnect with socializing 
And he lost his entire family when he transitioned. His entire family and extended family disowned him. And that's a lot of loss for somebody who now realizes that transition, that he never actually had gender dysphoria in the first place and transition probably wasn't necessary. So I don't, I definitely, even though like you're, you know, you're having this conversation with two people who were helped by transition, like I said, I'm the only one in my, in my circle of, of peers that, that doesn't regret it. And I did have complications for my surgery. They weren't fortunately as severe as, as some that can happen and they've since been resolved, but I am a lifelong medical patient. And so I think the, the marketing and the media really paints this as celebratory, you know, that everything trans is, is a celebration and an affirmation, but it, it I think behind the scenes, you know, behind closed doors, it can go a lot worse than, than people realize. And there aren't many websites that show, you know, all the websites that show, um, Surgery results tend to show the best results, where surgeons are only going to promote their absolute best results. Um, there is a website where users can upload their own photos, but they even that website does censor and they do take down the worst of, of the surgery results. So I don't think that it's possible, and most of us do online research when we're looking into these things and so we're getting that information from other trans people or trans providers who are only showing the best of the best and the reality is uh is quite different from from how that's marketed but you know i i feel for parents because i mean Aaron described how he kind of came to a place of concern and where I came to a place of concern was, was as a clinician. And I had always assumed because my, you know, circle of friends had been, had been butch lesbians before they transitioned. And so I'd kind of wrapped my head around what that means. We all had a similar experience of gender dysphoria. Um, so I always just assumed, I guess, we're just women who were masculinized because of some sort of hormone imbalance and, and that, it's somehow related to our sexual orientation and, and the masculinization of the female body. Um, and I left the LGBT community quite some time ago. I just have been off living my life um, in a more rural setting. So I hadn't been connected to the scene for, for roughly a decade when the clinic that I was working for decided to start providing trans health services because of the number of, of you young people that we were seeing coming to us wanting those services. And it, at one point it was about 30% of our, of our client population was requesting the services in a, in a fairly small city. And I started doing the assessment and working with these young people. And it was very quickly apparent to me that very few of them had the same experience of gender dysphoria that I did. Um, of the boys, none of them were gay. All of the boys were either straight or um, or bisexual. Most of them were straight. And of course, in my mind, I conceptualized this as something that gay and lesbian people experienced because that had been my peer group. Um, so I could tell that the that the heterosexual boys were experiencing something different than I had experienced. And and of the girls, that was very mixed. I think some of them had a similar experience of gender dysphoria I had had, and some of them 
seem to be picking up more in this queer theory sort of youth subculture that's developed of all of the you know hundreds of neo pronouns and you know the the bright colored hair and, and they have a certain aesthetic it's sort of this it's sort of the new punk or the new goth you know lots of piercings and bright colored hair and tattoos and and cutting and and they would come in in small groups you know these like four friends at a at a you know a middle school or high school coming in together and didn't seem distressed they seemed quite gleeful about becoming trans um and that was just a very different presentation than the old school butch lesbians who were tortured and tormented and wouldn't allow themselves ever to be touched because of their their body dysmorphia um was very different when I was seeing with with these most of of the girls that were coming in, um, and some of them, a lot of them were very complex young people who had multiple layers of different diagnoses. Some of them came from trauma backgrounds. Some of them had autism. Some of them have ADHD, um, and that seemed to be the be the norm for for a lot of these young people. And some of them, you know, you could just sense that they had been very lonely kids. And the drive to transition seemed to be about fitting in with the peer group. And they just, they hung, they had a hunger to belong somewhere. And I asked this one kid, you know, I said, I reflected some of that back and said, like, it, it sounds like you were very lonely and just started bawling in, in the office, right? So that was obviously something that was very, you know, it didn't take much digging to, to access that, that emotion of, of not feeling like, she belonged anywhere not having a peer group and then and she was really pushing to rush to medicalize and and the rationale she would give is well because my friends are my friends are all on testosterone i don't want to be my only friend that's not on testosterone so i was seeing this this very diverse group of young people coming in and highly complex and I think I'm a decent assessor. I think I'm a decent enough mental health clinician that I could sense that they're very different things were going on for all of these kids. And that confused me because I just assumed I understood what gender dysphoria was and wanted to really help these kids. But it became very quickly apparent that either there's a whole bunch of different kinds of gender dysphoria or most of these kids don't have gender dysphoria. And And what happened when you sort of try to for, uh, for either of you raise the alarm about this that that the population seeking the interventions that that you both sought somewhat successfully were very different and were arriving self-diagnosed and were steeped in some ideas that neither of you had ever had access to what happened when you tried to talk about that out in the in the world some well Aaron you probably have a better answer because you you were kind of kind of kind of trying to to raise a little bit of uh concern there in the in the, in the healthcare practice um for for me it was more social I started talking to my friends and family about it I'm like I'm seeing this stuff and and they just seemed either like confused by it or I was blowing it out of proportion or then when I bring it up to um, like in online trans groups, it was very clear that it was transphobic for me to suggest that some like some trans people could be more or less trans than others is how they were uh, interpreting what I was saying. So it's either it seems like mainstream normies just think that you're kind of like 
being paranoid and ridiculous. And it's like, no, of course, nobody's going to transition unless they're actually, you know, dysphoric. Um, that was like, yeah, normies. And then the the kind of hyper online trans communities is like, yes, of course, that's that's going on. And it's transphobic of you to demand something else. You know, that was my my experience of it. Mine was complicated. I mean, I did try to raise my concerns within the community of practice. So I was connected to a provincial community of practice and the provincial health authority that oversees how trans care is, is done. And the message that we were getting as clinicians was, you know, that you're not supposed to gatekeep, you know, that horrible, awful sin of gatekeeping. And um, I was asked, because I had been count, I because I had been out of the loop for so long, I thought that the assessment process was more or less the same as when I went through it. So we were counting on spending like maybe three months with these young people to to really explore with them different different angles and it, it became really quickly apparent to me through mentorship calls and and the online listserv that that isn't really how people are practicing anymore and i was told well no you could do these assessments in a single visit if you have time to sit down with them and and have a longer conversation that, you know, if you were a GP that was booking people in for 10 minute appointments, it might take longer. But if you could sit down with them for half an hour, or an hour, you could just get it done and send them on their way. So, so that was on my radar that, that the practice had changed drastically since I went through it. Um, and that wasn't sitting well with me knowing that the youth that I had coming into my office who were so highly complex and I was becoming so confused about well, what is gender dysphoria then? Like if, if I'm just supposed to rubber stamp all these kids, because I was told the purpose of the assessment was only to determine their capacity to consent, mm. which is very subjective. Like, what does that mean exactly? What, what, what does, what is informed consent, you know, in this context? And, um, but I, you know, I was told really that you're just, you know, anything short of cognitive impairment or, fluorid psychosis or something, you know, that's, uh, you know, a really extreme mental impairment or mental illness that was, that was impairing their, their judgment. Other than that, anyone from about age 16 and older could consent to their own care. And it's not for, it's not our place to question it or to say yay or nay, or you're trans or not, that, that it's sort of this, this human rights framework of, people have a right to do with their bodies whatever they want and people know who they are who they are and have full autonomy so really the role of of clinician was just to say okay they had a one page checklist you just go through this checklist of doing some basic medical screening um some basic mental health screening but not a lot of guidance for okay what if we do see comorbidities what is our thought process then so you know we're, you're wanting us to ask questions about it so yes, they have autism. Now what? Now what? Do, what do I do with that information? So there was really no guidance around that, and and I think the 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 message that I got was people have a right to be both mentally ill and trans, just like they had a right to be mentally ill and gay. So no matter how mentally ill someone might be, they they could they're still gay. So that was sort of the thinking around it was even if someone was florid, floridly psychotic, why can't they be both trans and psychotic? And so even though we were supposed to do an assessment on their mental health, that information was kind of going nowhere. It, it, as long as they had the capacity to consent in, in sort of like very general terms, they could be very, very unwell. But 
we weren't allowed to gatekeep trans medical interventions. But like I said, at the same time, I'm thinking about my friend who realizes, oh, it was my trauma that made me do this, or it was my autism that made me do this, and now they're unhappy and regret their decision. And But you're telling me if a kid is in my office with autism or trauma that I can't explore with them, you know what, you might regret this someday once you work through that trauma or once you realize this was your autism. And I was told, well, you know, you're, you're not allowed to gatekeep. Yeah, but once again, it comes back to, does anybody ask, what do you think this is going to do for you, right? What are you, what are you expecting to get out of this? And I don't know, I have not had any plastic surgery, um, though now that I am older, I can see the appeal. But, um, you know, I think I would want someone, if I went in for a nose job, I think I actually would want them to, to say, what do you think is going to get better about your life? And and here's what could happen. You could lose your sense of smell or you could look weird or you could have that kind of nose job that everybody everybody knows is a nose job, which makes me think that'll become a thing the same way you were talking, Aaron Terrell, about like people, people not transitioning to become to appear like the opposite sex and blend in, but wanting to be trans and wanting to be special and wanting to fit in. Um, it just makes me think there might be a thing in the future where everyone gets a nose job that's like so obvious that it's a nose job, you know, and that'll become the, that'll become the hip new, new thing. But that is such a massive shift from I, something is wrong, I shouldn't be in this category and I shouldn't have this kind of body to I want to be special. And I I have had some realizations for myself that I I'm sure I would have been absolutely declared myself non-binary, made everyone in my family miserable wanting them to bow to my ideological stance because I was very depressed. I very much wanted to die as a teenager. I struggled so much socially. Um I just could not, I, I, and my body did, I have written some pieces about that, this, but it, it came out a little funnier than um, a lot of other people's, like my breasts and my fingers and my nails, like I just didn't, I did not, I was not delivered with um, what uh, um, a lot of the other girls got delivered with, and I was so <laughs> ashamed, I was so ashamed. And I wanted off the planet. And I think I think non-binary would have been fantastic for me. Plus, I was a hippie and didn't shave my armpits because that was the kind of town and family I grew up in. So, um, and I guess I would have had better friendships. Um, but I would have been um, even more insufferable than I was. <laughs> <laughs> but... I mean, the, the question that people ask is, well, what's wrong? Like it, going back to your question of it's such small numbers and what's wrong with affirming people and what's wrong with what's wrong with people doing this, even if they didn't have the same gender dysphoria I had. But I guess the question I would ask them in return is, do you think cutting off your breasts is first line treatment for sexual trauma? Right. Or do, do you think masculinizing your body is first line treatment for autism? And and then it becomes very nonsensical, right? I mean, of course, of course, if someone's sexually abused, we wouldn't think of genital mutilation 
as being the answer to their trauma. So when you're in a when you're a parent who suspects that this is what's going on, or when you're a clinician in the position sitting with that child and wanting what's best for them and wanting them to be safe and wanting them to be, you know, to heal and be successful in life, it doesn't sit right with me to just rubber stamp them and say, yes, we'll just do this because you want it. And in the short term, it's going to make you happy. Right. Because we can't ever promise, can't ever promise that the interventions will make anyone happy. And so, so you both became aware that children, especially children and young people were not getting good healthcare. And, and Aaron Terrell, you mentioned something I absolutely have experienced, which is, which is like a certain segment of my friends just being like, why, why do you have to keep talking about this? Like, who cares? And, and then, and then the talking about it uh, on, among another segment resulting in you're a terrible, horrible transphobe bigot. And I did try to adjust the way I talked about it um, for many years. And in my book, I skirted the issue and accepted things that I wish I'd been more skeptical of or pushed back on more, but I wasn't in any position to five years ago when I was writing that book. Um, so we we all arrived at this place where we understood that the issue was being heavily censored by activists, um, that medical associations were not open to um, collecting data on what was really happening and that the story was more complicated than anyone involved in it in the in the media, in mental health, in the medical field. Um, was letting on. And we were, all three of us have sort of been in this position of like, what do you do? What do you do once you realize that? And you have information that isn't getting out there. And then we had, so this this has been going on, I think since 2018, because I think it's since Jesse Singles article in the Atlantic. I think that was the turning point because I had written my op-ed in the New York Times the year before and they were loving it. They were loving the attention. So, but a year later, it was like, oh, we must have the story wrong because the severity of the reaction. Um, so we're gonna stop reporting this way. And every and and many other things happened. The Trans Journalists Association. I mean, I'm very focused on what happened in the media, but this is all related to then we get this. Then we have starting the middle of last year when the New York Times has the Emily Bazelon article, The Battle of Her Gender Therapy, and it opens the door for, oh, maybe something's going wrong here, which of course that door should have been opened four years earlier, but um, whatever, it didn't, it didn't happen. And then we get this letter from GLAAD a, a few weeks ago um the gay and lesbian anti uh, something against An anti-defamation anti-defamation i forget yeah. what the yeah. middle a is and um yeah. and it demanding that the new york times stop um reporting in a complex way and um which they call transphobic because debate you know because of the no debate stance, debate is transphobic and um, 
countering any kind of narrative, focusing on people who got hurt, all of that is transphobic. And to my mind, it's really backfiring um, spectacularly, but I guess we don't know. Um, but it, it sets off the storm of some New York Times contributors sign their own letter saying, stop, you're making us uncomfortable at work. And then their guild backs them. And then the Times says, no, we do real journalism here, which they haven't been doing on this issue. But uh -huh. I, they probably really have to do that, show that now. Yes, we are going to do actual journalism. And then, and then comes your letter. So... Will you, for people who haven't read it, and I'll link to it, but will you explain what your letter was and, and what you wanted out of writing it? Well, I think we just kind of realized that we have, well, first of all, Glad said, you know, listen to trans people. So we thought we could we could uh, jump in there. Um, the reason I've got into this conversation, you know, years ago was because I feel like as a you know, I've got that get out of jail free card as a trans person, right? So that that puts us in a nice position. Um, and then, Aaron, you—it was your idea to 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 put to write this letter, and you um, you uh, you had written a, a Twitter thread that we basically decided like that's the crux of this issue here is that we need to explain that that there's there's a psychological condition that is gender dysphoria, and then there's this postmodernist theory that is kind of driving all of this this confusion and uh what we think is very dangerous around uh uh you know gender related healthcare and if we could just get back to what the actual condition is of gender dysphoria and if we could actually talk about it, what it is and what motivates people to transition and um you know we we could basically yeah hopefully uh lessen a lot of the harm that we see happening um through these these activist organizations and these activist captured um, organizations, and I don't think it's something people realize. I think the average person probably, I don't know. I'm not in other people's heads, and I'm so immersed in trans stuff. But I, I, I'm guessing the average person thinks that gender dysphoria is what trans is and why people transition. And and I think um, they also assume that people are having these rigorous in-depth psychological evaluations to determine that they are this, this, you know, really trans, you know, they, they and assume that. And happening. assuming that there's, yeah, a diagnosis of, of gender dysphoria, but I don't think people realize the extent to which that very conversation isn't even allowed to happen within the medical establishment. So I am a clinician. I was trying to have that conversation with them rather naively. I wasn't there to be a shit disturber. I, I stumbled it onto landmines quite, unintentionally because I didn't realize the extent to which over the last 15 years ago, over the last 15 years that, that thinking and practices has changed so much. So when I was still part of the community 15, 20 years ago, queer theory was sort of this fringe thing that, that some people were, some people were into, but it hadn't, it hadn't taken over the entire our, how we think about these things. It hadn't eclipsed our understanding of gender dysphoria at that time. Because I remember some of the butch lesbians I was hanging around with. I mean, then it was called gender identity disorder or or GID for short. And that was sort of tossed around amongst butch lesbians that, yeah, I've got GID. And so that was part of the conversation. And I, I happened to know um, I was I was dating 
a woman who was good friends with a social worker that worked at the gender clinic back then. And she had a good head on her shoulders. And I think she understood, you know, gender, you know, this concept of gender identity disorder. And she had no, she had no interest or tolerance for the queer theory stuff. I remember she was at a conference once and someone was talking about transgender from a queer theory perspective, because that word actually comes from, from queer theory. That isn't a medical term, you know, and I don't think people realize that either. The medical term used to be transsexual. If you had gender dysphoria and you medicalized, you were, became a transsexual. There's no such thing as a transgender person as like a separate sort of phenotype or, you know, it's not a, it's not a separate category of personhood. It's something we become when we medicalize. Um, so this this social worker was hearing someone talk about transgender from a you know that political queer theory lens, and she said this woman has no idea what she's talking about. Like she was very dismissive of that way of thinking. So now, you know, fast forward twenty years, what I didn't realize entering into the clinical world was the extent to which queer theory has completely shoved out all clinical discussion and understanding of what gender dysphoria is as a condition. And, and so, and because I didn't realize that I just went into these, these spaces, these clinical spaces talking about gender dysphoria um, and seeing different, different presentations and then asking, is there, are there different kinds of gender dysphoria? And the response to that was complete shutdown. That this isn't appropriate conversation for this listserv. Um, People became very paranoid that I was a spy on the on the listserv, that I was somehow like a turf ally or something. You know that 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 slur was being tossed around, and I found that alarming. You know that I'm amongst clinicians and we should be able to talk about the condition at hand. And I was told, no, you don't have to have gender dysphoria to, to be trans. You don't have, even have to be trans to transition. It's like, well, then what is this? Like, what does this what does this mean then? And I just became so confused by what I was seeing and and how ideolo ideologically captured the clinical community is that we're not even allowed to talk about gender dysphoria, whereas the general public, I I, I think, would probably still think that that's what trans is is it's is it's gender dysphoria. Um, but I was immediately removed. I stopped receiving emails for the mentorship groups, and I was just immediately blacklisted from the clinical community. And Aaron, Aaron uh, uh, Terrell was was removed from the WPATH conference recently. We, our organization, sent him and paid for his, you know, seven hundred bucks Canadian for for um, his ticket to go to the WPATH conference virtually and asked a question about, for you know, first introduced himself as as a delegate from the Gender Dysphoria Alliance. Was immediately told that we're a turf organization, and. And a hate group. And when he asked the question of, you know, what is being put into place to prevent kids from being unnecessarily med medicalized, you know, I think you used the word cis. What's being done? Yeah, to I used their language. I said, yeah, what are what are providers doing to ensure that um, gender nonconforming cis children aren't unnecessarily uh, being medicalized? And I was kicked out of the conference for asking that question because what's so people like at the, the APA. They, they all default to WPATH. It's like, okay, this these are the experts. We're following the experts. And I don't know how anyone can read that latest standards of care and think that these are expert clinicians. It's 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 a hack job. And then when you, I went to the conference, it was even more clear that that there was no that there was no clinical guidelines being followed. They were pretty clear that this is basically just 
like what we have to like the, the stockade is basically what we had to write down for produ- providers to protect themselves from from lawsuits and it was very clear that basically anybody who wants to transition regardless of their age should be transitioned and like it so in that it was really alarming in that uh in there especially when they were talking about how do we how do we you know what kind of medicalization services can we offer to um genderqueer and non-binary minors like um it is clearly like this is this is just a youth subculture that these are teenagers that are opting into they don't need you don't like it was just mind-boggling and and it was so i thought that was a very reasonable question it's like you have to realize like if you've got these categories that are trans and cis you have to like how are you there's got to be some of these kids that shouldn't be medicalized right because it turns out that they're actually cis yeah and i was i was kicked out and there's a whole outcry uh for my thread to be removed um uh yeah, it was pretty, pretty by clinicians, crazy. right? Yeah, by... yeah, these are clinicians. Yes, yes, because yeah, and one of them said uh, basically, don't um, don't engage with him, don't talk to him. He's um, like, don't engage with that thread. He's not being genuine. He's from a he's from a trans hate group, um, uh, and then somebody said we need to get this thread taken taken down, and uh, then because in the I, I was on the online platform and I kept getting notifications. Um, so even though I was removed from the conference, I was still getting the the, the, the pop-up notifications of these messages. Um, and then I would click on them and it would tell me I was no longer registered. So I'm seeing what they're saying, which was, yeah, calling, you know, saying GDA was a hate group, that I was a turf, and that I was uh, just trying to stir the pot. And um, and then, yeah, some, one of the administrators uh, after we had one of the clinicians um, was calling for that to be taken down and calling me those names and whatnot. One of the administrators of the conference said, I saw the message that said Aaron Terrell was removed this morning. Um, so it's not even speculation that I was removed for that thread. It was, it, it, but yeah, and we've sent multiple emails to WPATH basically saying, what rule did I break? And if you can't demonstrate what rule, rule I've broken, we should obviously uh, be refunded for that that registration fee. But I mean, it was on the last day, sure, but we were supposed to have that entire, the entire content of the symposium for the following 60 days. So Aaron and anyone else at Gender Dysphoria Alliance could actually review all those materials. Um, and that was, for me, what was most worth, you know, was was having that access. And so, yeah, but we've never heard back. We've never been, um, it's never been explained why I was kicked out. Um, but yeah, people don't understand that that's how that organization operates. This is not a serious medical organization it's not um and and again these are the people that all of the other medical organizations that are pushing gender affirming care are deferring to they're saying oh this is what the experts at wpath say is the right call so Mm -hmm. um i think it was uh, not is that what is it not the chain of command but the um uh the, the trail of of expertise i'm i'm yeah anyway it's it's not there (laughs) Well, the expert consensus is it's yeah. just, you know the, there's different levels of of Call evidence. The chain of trust. Medic, the chain of trust. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. I mean that that is a terrifying story, because if those are clinicians and scientists and they're responsible for the care of children and they perceive asking a question of how do you safeguard children, how do you make sure you do? I mean any, you know. Any doctor should be able to answer. You go in and you say, "How do you, how do you make sure that I'm a good candidate for this? Or how do you ensure? What steps do you take to prevent me from getting hurt, or to make sure that I'm the right person to to get this treatment?" 
They should be able to answer that question. And I can't think of any other condition where you would not be allowed to ask that question. And so this kind of, it makes me think about the stories of some trans women and we didn't get to the, into the Blanchard and the autogynophilia and the, and the homosexual subtype, but, but, but that, you know, for those listening who don't, who don't know about these different types of gender dysphoria, that there are some, you know, males who are aroused by the idea of themselves as a woman. They don't necessarily have gender dysphoria, but they coached each other on what to say so that they would be approved for the medical intervention. So they would say, I hate my penis, I hate my body. And it's not necessarily that they all did, it's that they knew what they had to say to the clinicians. And so I think there's this um, protectiveness and defensiveness about gender dysphoria because it's wielded for people to get what they want, right? And then the other types kind of more organic, starts much younger that you're talking about and when we are in a situation where talking about a diagnosis whether it's a mental health diagnosis or a medical diagnosis and this is part of the opacity nobody knows what like if it's a mental health diagnosis why are we altering the body right there are all these different kinds of body dysmorphia For the most part, people don't, we don't give them plastic surgery to get the body when they have body dysmorphia. We give them cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. So this opacity around the diagnosis itself is is probably key to groups like WPATH being able to just forge ahead to make sure people get what they want. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, some of those people who've been, who who taught each other to lie to get what they wanted might be happy, but they have nothing to do with the vast majority of young people um, experiencing some kind of distress, self-diagnosing it, it as gender dysphoria and seeking medical intervention. They just, so those people should not be in charge. And and some of the problem I think comes from this own voices movement that sort of started in like literature, which is only we can write about our ourselves. I think it started in literature. I'd, I'd love someone to correct me if that's wrong. Um, it's become part of everything. It's become part of medicine. Only trans people can know what trans people need medically. And mm-hmm. trans people can report on trans people. We used to call that conflict of interest in the media, but now it's lived experience, lived experience, which is its own form of expertise. And a little bit of that is good. And that is important. And there are limits to objectivity. And some of these points are, are important that, it can be very hard for a person who's never experienced either gender dysphoria or this this kind of sexuality that seems very foreign and strange to a lot of people of autogynophilia. Yeah, it would be hard for some of us to treat those people because we might have such a bias against it that we can't get out of that to figure out, oh, what what's the best? Mm-hmm. But then you have people who are so biased in the other direction and so defensive and so unwilling to acknowledge that people are getting hurt 
that they can't possibly be trusted to provide good care. And as I always say, like own voices turns into one voice. And then, you know, there is nothing about medicine that's one voice. You know, that's, you. what about the second opinion? What about the body of evidence? Mm -hmm. Well, because, you know, um, trans health hadn't been my professional background at all. I'm a, I've worked in general mental health and psychiatry as a nurse. Um, so it was only a very brief period that I worked in trans medicine. So I'm used to the conventions of how medicine normally works. I've been to tons of, med of medical conferences of, for various other disorders like um, conversion disorders. And, um, you know, when you go to these conferences, it's always, you know, um, peer-reviewed papers are, are being presented and there's debate about, you know, the methodology and, and, and this really rigorous process of making sure that the evidence is, you know, that they, that their conclusions are, are valid and, and that a, a, a scientific method has been followed. And, and I think that dialogue and that debate of really pressing on the research is the norm. So to enter into a clinical space in trans space where you're not even allowed to talk about the condition, you're not allowed to understand it, you're not allowed to research it in some cases, it, that it's it's become this culturally sort of because queer theory is is a political philosophy. It's it it and it's it was never intended to help us understand what gender dysphoria is. Those are two completely unrelated things. And so it's alarming that the clinical practice is no longer about, let's dig into the evidence, let's understand this condition, let's make sure that we're providing the, the best, safest care possible. It's now this club of political social philosophy that doesn't seem to care who jumps on board. I mean, when, when you're an activist and you're trying to promote a, a political movement, in a political way of thinking, you want the movement to grow. It would be a very ineffective political movement otherwise. And when, so when your agenda is, let's collect people as we go, let's, let's, let's educate people to buy into our way of thinking, that's active recruitment. And active recruitment in this case involves severe body modification. Okay, I've, I've kept you both for a really long time, so I'm going to just ask you two more things. The first is, what are your asks? You wrote, you wrote this open letter. What are your asks? What do you want? I, we would like um, an independent systematic review of the evidence as has been done in, in uh, other countries like Finland and, and Denmark. Um, the European countries, several European countries have done thorough independent systematic reviews of evidence, which in any clinical practice is the highest form of, of evidence. So we want the medical system for gender dysphoria to be brought back into the conventions of any other medical practice that isn't ideological based, but based on evidence and review that evidence by someone that, that is independent so that they're not biased and aren't part of this this political movement, someone who's just very skilled at analyzing the quality of evidence and to design a, a system of care based on what that evidence says. Yep, yep. And to, and to yeah, and, and exactly what you're saying, and to, and to, uh, to, to extract the active, like the, the activist, the 
how how much activists are enmeshed in this field of healthcare is so so completely negligent on the part of the actual healthcare providers. Like we can't be so mad at the activists because they're activists. They're going to be they're they're going to petition for their cause, right? Then they're going to push and push. But it's the actual medical providers, the actual medical organizations whose job is to stick to the science and protect the patients and not fold to the whims of activists as they have been. Well said, and same with media. Um, yeah, yeah. So my final question is, do you think the situation is worse in Canada or the United States? Depends how you define worse. I mean, it, it, Canada has not budged at all. Uh, I know there are a number of people that are alarmed and are pushing back on this, you know, clinicians and journalists, and we're so ideologically captured we have a liberal government right now and that is very much on board with this the, the political agenda of of queer theory and everything trans um so canadian media is only just starting to crack open and and talk about this in a more balanced way i think um my impression is is the united states um you know, with a, with a number of states trying to pass legislation and reform how things are being done, it seems like the United States is ahead of Canada in moving that needle. Yeah, I think your media is a little bit more censorious, or your government is a more censorious of the media. Um, I'm, I'm not sure of the actual laws, but um, but yeah, I feel like yeah, I, I feel like there is a little bit. I think we are going yeah, getting to the end faster uh, here in the states. We don't have a free speech in our constitution, like yeah, they, so. Right, right. Um, I think that gives our government more license to to um, restrict our speech because it's not a protected right that Canadians have. Just to give one illustration of that, when our conversion therapy legislation was being debated in Parliament, um, I didn't feel like their debate was very balanced, and um, some of us that had concerns about how that legislation was being written into law, because they would, again, they weren't talking about gender dysphoria and the treatment of gender dysphoria. They were talking about this abstract concept of gender identity, which comes from from more of a queer theory lens. Um, so I felt like that legislation was really going to interfere with best practice for the treatment of gender dysphoria, and um, and I, and others had had concerns from different different angles and perspectives. And there was an organization that, because we weren't able to get into parliament to present our case, and the, the, our major media, which is controlled by the government, wasn't willing to cover our side of the story. So we actually bought ad space in the parliament newspaper to, and they wrote an article and then they had a series of ads. Um, so each ad had one of us on it, our picture, and a very short blurb about why we were concerned about this legislation. So ad space in, in newspapers is expensive. Uh, the first round of ads did run and all of the other planned ads. So the government obviously intercepted and they went and they said, no, you're not allowed to run these ads. So these are ads that we paid for and we weren't even allowed to run any for future ads in the newspapers and, our, and the money wasn't refunded. The money had to be donated to an LGBT advocacy organization. We can't even pay to have a voice. Dysphoria Alliance? Could you <laughs> Well, that is yet another um, frightening story. 
And I really hope that um, anyone from the media who might be listening to this, if they're looking for some trans people to interview, Aaron Terrell and Aaron Kimberly are available. And where can people find you? Probably go to our uh, website, uh, www.genderdysphoriaalliance.com. Um, we've got uh, a media package on there and a link um, to our email so people can reach out to us. Okay, great. Well, Aaron and Aaron, thank you so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. It's been Thanks a pleasure. Having me.